Thank you again, worship team, and uh, appreciate not only them leading us in worship and focusing upon the birth of Christ. Uh, just appreciate all in this church who have helped out in our worship ministry, our sound guys, our ushers as well. Appreciate them so much. Uh, those of you that were here with us last, uh, oh, please, uh, while, we're, while you're kind of listening to my intro, just kind of please take your Bibles, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 40. That's what we'll be this morning. But if you were here last night, it was just a blessed time. We got a little glimpse of that with our children's song today, and that was so encouraging. Um, I was even uh, just talking to some of the, the people on the, that plan. He said, man, we need to have an encore of some of those songs from last, uh, last night. That was wonderful, really encouraging. So we'll see if we can get that done. Anyways, uh, I'm so glad to have all of you here with us and joining us to worship the Lord on this uh, Sunday before Christmas. Uh, welcome all of you, uh, whether you're uh, guests and visitors uh, for the first time or you're here for the hundredth time or so. Um, we should have like a... a like a recognition when you've been a member for like a hundred Sundays or something like that. Kind of just special little lapel pin. I'm hundred Sunday Christian here. Uh, that'd be kind of cool. Uh, I'm just kidding. That'd kind of be neat though. Um, <clears throat> Isaiah chapter 40 is where we'll be. We're going we're gonna to wrap up in Isaiah for, well, I keep saying that every Sunday, but every Sunday is kind of wrap up. We're going to wrap up with Isaiah. We're going to go to Isaiah next week too, but uh, we're wrapping up Isaiah uh, and we're going to cover, just do an overview of these latter half of Isaiah today uh, to sort of wrap us up before we uh, take a little break, and we'll come back to Isaiah maybe in about a year or so, and we'll finish up these latter chapters. But uh, this will just give you a taste of it, a little hunger for it, uh, that you'll uh, look forward to these future chapters that we'll learn from the book of Isaiah. Before we uh, look more in, uh, begin our sermon formally, let's uh, go learn prayer one more time. Father, thank you for your word. We praise you that it is uh, an eternal word, a word that is, that is forever, unlike us who are grass and flowers who are here for a little while but fade. Lord, your word is everlasting. Your word is truth. Thank you, Father, your word is faithful, and that you cause it to go forth and accomplish that which you purpose to do in the hearts and lives of those who hear. So we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the book of Isaiah. And as we look over the, the major themes of the latter half of Isaiah, we ask that you would cause us to, to grow in our appreciation for you, for your word, but especially for your provision of salvation, Jesus Christ, for our sins. We ask that you would glorify yourself today through the preaching of your word. Cause your word to be heard by your people, Lord. For everyone gathered, cause them, Father, to each hear exactly that which you need that which they need to hear from you. We pray that you'll be glorified now through the preaching and hearing of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <coughs> well, many of you know that uh, the two major kind of Christian events in our calendar are Christmas and... Easter, right, exactly. Even as a young, unbelieving child, I, I would go to church always on Christmas and Easter, right? You kind of just go and you just go, you just kind of, because you know that's a significant day. I love it. I love Christmas. So I was just talking with our own Pastor Roger just this week in our uh, staff meeting. He's just like, we're just amazed by how God is, it, these days are so amazed, especially Christmas, is that God causes unbelievers to sing praise to Jesus Christ around this season, right? You go listen to your favorite radio, your pop stars. They're all singing about Jesus Christ, Savior of the world, died for our sins. Like, wow, yeah, that's cool. They don't believe it, but they're singing the praises of Jesus, you know? Just so how God can, he causes, if he can use, causes stone to praise him, right? He can, he can cause anyone to praise him. And then, but we're thankful, hopefully, that we here, that our worshipers of God, are praising him because we know. We know Jesus Christ. We've come to know him as our savior from sin, and we want to worship him. Well, as you know, uh, these holidays, Christmas and Easter, are such major events that we actually have names for the Sunday before, right? What's the Sunday before Easter? Palm Sunday. Yeah, right on. You guys are devout Christians, I can tell. Uh, <clears throat> you all know the name, Palm Sunday, right? Oh, so you, and since you're so devout, what's the, what's the Sunday before Christmas called? Sunday before Christmas. <laughs> good, good attempt, and that's true. Uh, well, unless you come from a, a church that has a, maybe a more high liturgy, liturgical tradition, and perhaps you come from a Lutheran tradition, uh, maybe a, one of the, a, you come from a German background, you, or perhaps you maybe even a Roman Catholic tradition too, 
Uh, we may not know, but the Sunday before Christmas is called, well, it's not that exciting. It's called the fourth Sunday of Advent. Fourth Sunday. Anybody know that? Oh, there you go. That's because you were here last service. Okay. <coughs> the fourth Sunday of Advent. That's exactly right. Now, as you know, the fourth Sunday of Advent implies that there are three other ones, right? First, second, third, at least. As you, many of you may be aware, you've probably heard of Christmas season being called Advent, right? You've heard of Advent. All of us have heard of Advent means, it's actually from a Latin word, means to come, to come near. And so it refers to the coming of Christ. Advent is a celebration of the coming of Jesus Christ to bring salvation to all the world. It does begin four Sundays before Christmas Day. So it begins on the fourth Sunday before Christmas and in many of those churches that do celebrate the Advent season, uh, we, to- we tend not to, uh, being a non-denominational kind of church, we're gonna, we kind of throw out all liturgy, but liturgy in itself is not bad. Uh, in fact, I was thinking maybe we can do it next year. But anyways, on, the, on each of the weeks, the Sundays of Advent, there would usually be, in some, it's more common practice, they'd have a lot like a, a wreath, and around a wreath would be four candles, right? And each Sunday of the week, of, each Sunday of the of Advent season, they would light one of the candles, and so on the fourth Sunday, they would light all four candles. You know, it's not a perpetual light, but, you know, they'd light it. And then with each candle, there's usually a, a reading from Scripture, a kind of reminder, uh, reading for, to remind us of the significance of that particular Sunday, something to do with uh, the, God's provision of salvation in Jesus Christ. Uh, I don't have any candles for us this morning. Uh, we're not, uh, we are not a high liturgical church, though, uh, again, nothing wrong with that. But I would like for us to come and to celebrate uh, the birth of Jesus Christ. That Jesus, remember that Jesus Christ came to bring salvation to all mankind. And uh, as so we look to Isaiah 40 to 66, I want to highlight for us, if you will, four, four themes, four lights, four candles, if you, can, if you can think of them that way, that would cause us to reflect and be thankful and glory in God's provision for our salvation. As, you, uh, have, as we have covered many times in Isaiah, Isaiah can, is, can be divided pretty evenly into, or pretty easily into two sections, two parts. In chapters 1 through 39, we could say that Isaiah teaches about our need for salvation. Why we need salvation? It's because we, we are sinful, we're fallen, uh, we're given to our own idol worship, our worship of self, our dependence upon self, given on a, to, left to our own devices, and we are all facing a wrath, the wrath of God. And so, therefore, we need salvation. We need deliverance. We cannot deliver ourselves. But in chapters 46-6, the latter half of Isaiah, we could say that it's described as God's provision for salvation. God's provision. That God provides salvation. And primarily, the focus of God's provision for salvation is focused and centered upon a man known as the servant, the Messiah, Jesus Christ we know today. And I believe this is a fitting theme for us as we come to this fourth Sunday of Advent. We celebrate Christmas. We want to remember God's provision for the salvation that is ours in Jesus Christ. We can all give many gifts this season and receive many gifts. We can do much decoration around our homes and in the church building. We can eat and enjoy as much food, as delicious food as we wish, with as much wonderful company that we choose, but without God's provision of salvation, our lives would be meaningless, wouldn't it? All that we do would just be empty practice until we die and face our judgment. And so this morning, as an outline for us, we're going to look at four highlights, four lights, four candles in Isaiah 46-6 that magnify God's provision for salvation to us today, okay? So it's really, it's just four major themes in the latter half of Isaiah 46.6. And the, on the one hand, they'll prepare us for the study in the future, and it'll kind of summarize for us, but on the other, on more, for us today, this week, that it will cause us to worship Christ. All right, so the first highlight that we're going to look at in Isaiah 46.6 is that it begins with the author of salvation himself, the one who provides salvation, the provider of salvation, and that is, we see in Isaiah 46, the God beyond comparison. The God that is beyond all comparison. This is, we could call it the incomparability of God. Um, 
And throughout this latter half of, of, of Isaiah, God constantly, consistently, regularly challenges people to, to that they should not compare him with anyone else. That he himself is quite beyond comparison. Therefore, we should look to him for salvation. One of the recurring themes in Isaiah is that, uh, that or titles that is given to God is that he is called the Holy One of Israel, right? Remember that Holy One of Israel? When we call him the Holy One of Israel, it starts, goes all the way, go back to Isaiah 6, 6, or Isaiah 6, where he is, the angels declare around him that holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He alone is holy. He is separate from all creation. He is unlike creation. He is set apart. He is morally perfect. He is perfect in all ways. He is completely unlike anything that we, could, that we can see or identify or even think of in this world. He's far above all creation, and more importantly, he is not like the gods of the earth, which are really, in reality, only idols. In Isaiah chapter 40, we're gonna, I'm going to go through a lot of different texts this morning because it's a survey, so I'm going to jump from different passages. So you can look in your Bible. I'll try to reference, make the references, but I'll also put them up on our keynote, too, so in case you, you miss it, you can, you can look back and take a look at it. In Isaiah 40, chapter, chapter 40, verse 12 to 26, we come across this magnificent description of God's incomparability. There's no one, nothing like God. Isaiah begins in, in verse 12 to 14 with a series of rhetorical questions that magnify, first of all, God's superior knowledge. And I, I won't read it for you because I, I want to focus on other verses, but no one can teach God. You know, it's often been said that God is, the, is, the poor, is a poor student because he, never, he cannot learn anything new. He knows all things already. He, neither, he, never, he doesn't need any consultation. He doesn't need any information that you or I could give him because he knows all things. Not only does he have a superior knowledge, but in verse 15 to 17, he's above all the nations. He's far above all the nations. And in verse 15 to 17, the nations are like a drop in the bucket compared to God. And then in 18 to 20 of chapter 40, he is greater than all the idols as well. Verse 18, I'll put this up for us. God says, to whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? Who can we compare to God with God? Many times we try to compare God. God's like this, God's like that. But God's no, not like any of those things. Sometimes we compare God with the idols of this world. Well, God is like, he's kind of like all the other, the chief gods. He's like Zeus. He's like Jupiter. He's like, um, you know, <coughs> he's like uh, this other God in this, in this other religion. No, God is unlike any of those gods. You cannot compare him with them. Idols and these God, these, the, the idols and gods of other religions are ultimately simply creations of men. But God of the Bible is the creator of all men. Verses 21 to 24, what's more here, his comparability is seen in that he is the sovereign ruler of the world. No one else is sovereign ruler of the world. We have human kings and rulers and that rule over different little lands, little countries, little cities. But God is the sovereign ruler of the world. No one can resist his power. Look at Isaiah 40, verse 22 and 23. I love this. When I first heard this in seminary, I was in awe of this truth. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. The earth is kind of described as a circle, and it's above the earth. And its inhabitants, dig this, are like grasshoppers, you know, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. You know, we are all simply grasshoppers. I like that picture, right? You know, grasshoppers, you ever kind of play with grasshoppers? Uh, you can try to make contests, see if you can get them to jump, you know. Um, see if we can, some, some can jump higher than others, jump farther than others. And that's kind of what we are, even if you compare ourselves among men. Some of us are, can jump higher. Some of us can jump farther. But it's wrong to compare us with, to try to compare us with God, to make us see as if we were equal with God. Good God is, sits above the circle of the world. He's far above. Grasshoppers jump. Doo, 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 doo. God is way above the world. That's how great God is. He is far superior to creation and to the ruler, and especially to the rulers of the world. He is the sovereign ruler. He makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Trump? No, that's nothing to him. 
he reduces rulers to nothing. I love that. Just God is the sovereign ruler of the world, even the, our mightiest leader of our world is simply a grasshopper that can jump a little higher than the rest. No one can, furthermore, um, no one is equal to God. No one is equal to God. Isaiah 40, verse 25, listen to this. To whom then will you liken me that I would be his equal, says the Holy One. You can't liken him to anyone else. God is not like just, well... <clears throat> especially when we're unbelievers in the fall, we think, well, you know, I heard, we, we treat God's word as if it was equal to, well, I'm considering what God is saying, and then I'm going to consider what this man says. I'm going to consider what, no, you've already got it wrong. You've already got it wrong because you put God equal with man. You can't compare God with man's words. His words are higher than our words. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. We are not to compare God with man. Even <coughs> unbelievers We'll come to recognize this. In Isaiah 45, verse 5 through 7, uh, God's word speaks a word to King Cyrus. And when we get there, that's going to blow your mind too because he's prophesying to this man who does, at that point has not, does not yet exist in the world, but is going to come, be born and ro- rise up to become king of, of, of an empire and who is going to set the people of God free. Okay, so anyway, he's saying to Cyrus in verse 5, chapter, Isaiah 45, I am the Lord, there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord. There is no other. I love that. God tells Cyrus that he's, he's going to raise him up. Even though he doesn't know him, Cyrus doesn't know who God is. He's, he's a pagan. You know, this is a worship. He worships his, other, his own gods. But God's going to use him for what purposes? He's going to raise them up so that the men of the world, the people of the world, all across from the rising to the setting of the sun, that means basically everyone around the world is going to know that there's no other God besides him. No other God besides the Lord. There is no other. How is he so different? We've already read in Isaiah 55, verse 8 to 9 from our uh, scripture, the reading this morning. When God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. We usually quote that. I remember memorizing this as a, as a youth, and just kind of thinking about, oh, basically God's ways are better than my ways, and so his thoughts are higher than my thoughts. Just thinking how great his knowledge is. But there's a purpose in understanding this. There's a purpose is this, because his ways are higher than my ways. My thoughts are my way, thoughts. It should cause me to turn away from my ways. It should cause me to turn away from my thoughts. We who walk upon this earth do not believe in God because we choose our own ways. We do not believe in God because we follow our own thoughts. We kind of try to figure out the world by our own thoughts. We say, well, I observe the world, and this is what I think the world is about. I love my, one of my coworkers back in the days when I was in seminary. He said, you know, I think the, uh, I think the world is... There. I think basically this world is created by aliens, you know, and then he kind of showed me Ezekiel and said there's aliens there, UFOs that came. And so, and I, I, man, I just had this relative recently that I know that thinks that aliens, you know, kind of established this world. And that's our world. People just kind of come up with these ideas that, well, that's, that's my thoughts. That's how I think the world exists or why, how, why life came. That's our thoughts. But our thoughts are not God's thoughts. We need to turn away from our thoughts. You need to turn away from our ways and turn to God. Because <clears throat> he is the incomparable God. God's people should not look anywhere else for salvation. We're not, salvation is not found in man's knowledge. It's not found in man's nations. It's not found in man's idols. It's not found in man's kings. Salvation is of the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, the incomparable God. That is why we can trust in him, in his word, in his ways, in his thoughts. The second highlight leads us to a second highlight. And that is, the wicked face condemnation. The wicked face condemnation. Not only do we, have come, do we see in the first half of Isaiah, this, or the second half of Isaiah, the incomparable God, we see still this reminder that the wicked face judgment. Now we've, 
I think we've been pretty, you know, full of judgment recently. We, we're especially going through Isaiah. If you're not convinced that God is bringing judgment upon our world after going through Isaiah uh, 1 through 39, oh, man, uh, maybe I should go back and preach it again because it's really clear. I, mean, I was just like, oh, that's, that's some serious judgment in Isaiah. The wicked face a judgment, and the wicked are those who do not turn to faith to Christ. And just though, if you remember, in our first half, when we, though there was many passages that spoke about judgment, there would always be passages that speak about the deliverance that would come through the Messiah. And in the same way, even though the latter half of Isaiah talks about our deliverance, our great salvation, but there are still constant reminders of judgment. And it would come always at the very pointed time, very just a, remind, a reminder after descriptions of deliverance. In fact, this is a good time to just kind of give you a, break, uh, a basic outline of the latter half of Isaiah. Isaiah 46 is exactly 27 chapters. And those 27 chapters can be divided into three sections of nine chapters each. In fact, that's how, you would, how we, would, we will outline this book or this latter half. And then every, and especially for the first, uh, the first chapters 40 to 48 and chapters uh, 49 through 57, each of those sections, those first two sections, they both end with the same truth. I'm putting them both up here. And I kind of put the verses up there. Hopefully you wrote them down. But in Isaiah 48, 22, the last verse of chapter 48, the first section, it says, there is no peace for the wicked, says the Lord. And then when you go all the way to, to the end of the second section, it says, there is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. No peace for the wicked. Sometimes it's said, it's, uh, people quote it as saying, there is no rest for the wicked. I remember when we first arrived here at this church, that we, our pastor of the church uh, would often say this quote, no rest for the wicked, no rest for the wicked. So much, uh, I don't, man, most of you don't remember that. So, but it, it's just like, it was just um, it's ingrained in my head. Now I see, well, it's right here in this text right here. That there is really no rest, no peace, no shalom, no well-being, no welfare for the wicked. That those who pursue sin, who pursue after their own ways, their own thoughts, they pursue after wealth or pleasures or accomplishments in this life, will never find it enough. Will never find that it satisfies. Even when they gain much wealth, they'll be dissatisfied. They'll want more. They'll, want, they'll have so much pleasures, they'll still want more. They'll have certain conscience in but they'll find that it's not enough, and they'll want more because there is never enough because of our sin, because we're choosing to go our own ways. It is all emptiness and vain, says Solomon. In this life, the wicked experience the emptiness and consequences of their sin. I know as a young, young man, in college, I felt this emptiness. I felt, man, life is... Is this all that life is? Is it a series of accomplishments after another? Is it just parties one weekend after the other? It seems very empty and vain. The wicked will find no rest, according to the scriptures. Why do they find no rest? Because uh, Isaiah 59, 2 explains us. But your iniquities, your sin, have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. The reason why <coughs> we face condemnation is ultimately because of our sin, because it separates us from God. It breaks this relationship with him and us. Now, I don't know how many of you have, uh, either have children or all of us have parents, but if you've ever had a broken relationship with, your, with a family member, a close family member, it is usually painful usually. It grieves us. It sorrows us. I know I, I can just imagine when the time comes, and if, if I were to have a broken relationship with my own children, that, w- that would tear me up. We are grieved when we have broken relationships with close family members. Because why? Because we sense that there's a, there's a rightness when family members dwell in peace and harmony with one another. That that's how it ought to be. That's how God... That's how, even we don't believe in God, that's how family is supposed to be. We talk about it, family. How much more then when we have a broken relationship with God, the very one who created us, the one who made us, the one who designed this world and designed you and me so that we might live in this world. And so when we, but when we choose our own ways, when we go our own ways, when we have a broken relationship with God, we choose sin, 
we end up living in a world in a way that this world is not designed to be lived in. And we find it empty and vain because we see the, pursue the things of the world apart from a recognition of God. And that leads to emptiness and vanity. I know it's a little philosophical, but it's true. It's an emptiness. Because of this broken relationship with God, God turns away from sin. But what's worse, according to these these verses, that there is a far worse pain that awaits the wicked after this life on earth is over. It's hinted in these verses, but it's brought out very clearly at the end of our third section. Turn to the last verse of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 66, verse 24. In the end time, in the, in the kingdom, in the future kingdom, the righteous, those who have uh, believed upon the Lord, trusted him, then they will go forth and look on the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me. For their worm will not die and their fire will not be quenched and they will be in abhorrence to all mankind. We see here a description of the destiny of those who are wicked, those who have transgressed against God, those who do not turn in repentance to him. They will be corpses. They will die. And the world will apparently be able to see them somehow. But they will continue in eternal conscious torment. It says here, for their worm will not die. The worm will not die, and it can mean that either if, if it's used figuratively of the person's soul, their soul will not die, or it could use of corpses, usually dead bodies have worms that, you know, will start, you know, digging through and eating those bodies up. It could refer to that, but no matter which one you want to take, both are a conscious torment to have a worm that will not die, a soul that continues existing, having your body eaten up by worms and never having it cease. What's more is this end, this end will be characterized by a fire that will not be quenched. You know, if you can't, uh, we, we've all burned ourselves at different times and there's great pain. But in eternity in hell and judge God's wrath, there will be a fire, a constant burning of our bodies that will never end. A constant eternal torment. And it will be an abhorrence to all mankind. People will look upon it and will turn away. It is because it is so terrible. This, the ends of each of these sections, and this great uh, latter half of the provision of salvation, remind us: yes, there is a provision for salvation. But if you did not turn to that provision, if you did not re- receive that gift of salvation through that comes through the Messiah, the servant, then you will have no peace. And what's worse, you will spend eternity in eternal torment. Jesus, in fact, will quote from this verse in Mark, Mark chapter 9, verse 48, describe the unquenchable fire of hell. I've always, you know, I know in this room, every week, we I, we, I preach the word here. Every week we've been talking about judgment for the, in the last first half of Isaiah. And I know in this room there, and in this church, there, there are unbelievers. And I'm thankful that you're here. I am. I'm glad you're here because it tells me that you come week in, week out. You hear what's going on. So for some reason you're drawn here, and I believe it's God's drawing you here. And I've talked about judgment, and I've talked about God's wrath. And yet, I have not yet heard that you have turned in faith to Jesus Christ. I've heard that you have not received the provision of salvation that's been bought for you and paid for by the blood of Christ. And I honestly, I sometimes scratch my head because I cannot, I, I, cannot, I cannot think of any other way for me to, to convey to you the, the reality of this judgment, that it's coming. And it's a terrible judgment. And I would plead for you, to turn away, for there will only be no rest for the wicked. And it's not just I who say it, but it's God's word who says it. It doesn't help if you say you don't believe it. It's not going to change it if you say, well, I, don't, I, I didn't know about it. If you've been coming, you know about it. But if you say, I don't believe it, 
You know, just imagine if you went to another country, and there's countries out there, you go there, and you chew gum. You'll be fined and penalized. You do some, you know, you do graffiti. Well, you're not going to just do a little community service. You're going to get caned. There are a lot of countries in this world where you can't go out and just tell someone about the gospel. You say, well, I, you know, I didn't know. Sorry, I didn't know about that law. It doesn't change the fact that you broke a law, and you'll be found guilty, and you'll be experienced the penalty of that law. How much more when it comes to God, God's law, whether you believe it or not, whether you know it or not, judgment is coming because of our sin. The outcome will not change. And were it not for God, there will be no hope for any of us. We would all face this condemnation. And that's why how we rejoice this Christmas season because we remember that God sent us his son as a provision for our salvation. He gives us these warnings in Isaiah so that we would turn to him for salvation. And that's what we find in our third highlight of the, of the latter half of Isaiah, promises of consolation, comfort. And that is we find this third highlight, the afflicted receive comfort. The re- afflicted receive comfort. Comfort is a key word throughout Isaiah. It appears some 15 times in, in the respect of these chapters. But it's, it's, kinda, it's very significant that in the very beginning of this first half of, the, of Isaiah, and second half of Isaiah, excuse me, it actually begins this word not just once, but twice. Look at Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1 with me. It says, comfort, oh comfort my people, says your God. I love that. It's actually, it's, it's beautiful in the Hebrew. It's actually, there's, an, there's a similar sound, an assonance, they call it, is the technical term for it. You know, it's like, <clears throat> raham, raham, ami. You know, kind of just, uh, hopefully I didn't butcher the, the Hebrew there for you, those of you Hebrew folks out there. But it's just a beautiful, comfort, comfort my people, says God. This is an appropriate time to kind of just mention, give us the context for these latter parts of Isaiah 40 66. You know, 1 through 39 was written to Israel to prepare for the Assyrian captivity. You remember that, right? We covered that. We kind of ended with how God delivered uh, Hezekiah, Jerusalem, from, from Assyrian attack. But chapters 40 to 66, the context almost jumps 150-some years ahead. It's written from the perspective of after Judah is taken into captivity by Babylon. Remember the promise that Judah would be taken into captivity by Babylon? It goes all the way into the future. And so it writes to Israel in captivity. God writes to those people to, that he, so that they would be comforted in the midst of their exile as slaves in Babylon. You can imagine what it's like to be slaves. And we can imagine even ourselves when we go through difficulties or trials. And hopefully none of us, are, it comes close to being enslaved in a foreign land. But sometimes even when we go through difficult trials, what do we do? We kind of start questioning God. Because God, I'm yours, right? And we kind of wonder, is God on my side? God, have you forgotten me? I'm here. I've been praying. And you're not, it doesn't seem like you're answering. But I love what God says to his people. Comfort, oh comfort, my people, says your God. God reminds the people of Israel that he has not forgotten them. He tells them, you know, you are still my people. I'm still your God. And though they were sent into captivity because of their sin, because they're his people, because he's their God, he's going to bring comfort, a consolation, rest for them. Verse 2 says, speak kindly to Jerusalem, call out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Tells her that his, her enemies are going to be removed, her sin is going to be removed her, <clears throat> from her. She's, not, he's, she's, going to, she's already received enough of the penalty or the discipline from God because of her sin. And God's going to bring her back into the land. But more importantly, God's going to forgive 
going to remove her iniquity. He's going to forgive them. And then, using King Cyrus, which we'll see, bring them back to land. In fact, we, we looked at that when we went through Ezra uh, some years back. But imagine, or think, know this, that even that deliverance, where God promises to Judah that he'll bring them back to land, is ultimately a, a fulfillment of a greater fulfillment. It's a picture of a far greater fulfillment that's mentioned in verses 3 to 5 of Isaiah 40. There, God promises that he's going to reveal the glory of his glory to them. All flesh is going to see this glory, and this glory, of course, is none no less than Jesus Christ. We beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten, full of grace and truth, said John of Jesus. <coughs> God promises the Messiah. He promises comfort through Christ. And the truth is, the same, it remains true for us today that when God offers to us peace and comfort and rest from our afflictions, from our difficulties, from the trials, from the, the curse of sin, it is through, ultimately, the Messiah, the glory of the Lord. The most uh, well-known uh, promise of this is in Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1 and 2. We read, the Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Uh, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Here is a prophecy of the Messiah, who himself, first of all, will be anointed by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord will be upon me. And that's so significant. We go back to Jesus' baptism. Then what happened there? The Spirit descended like a dove. God then declared, this is my son. Listen to him. The, back in, in the Old Testament times, not everyone was filled with the Spirit of God like you and I are today and, and how blessed we are to have the Spirit. But to be in the Old Testament and in Jesus' day before the Spirit came, God's, God's chosen servants needed to be filled with the Spirit because through, by the power of the Spirit, they would go about doing what they were set apart and sent to do. He would be anointed, the Messiah would be anointed by the Holy Spirit to bring good news. First of all, he'll bring good news to the afflicted. He'll bring the gospel to those of us who are experiencing affliction. You're experiencing suffering, you're experiencing difficulties, you're experiencing trials in this life because of living in a fallen world. Well, the Messiah brings good news for you. He, comes to, he has come to bind the brokenhearted. And if you've ever lived in this world, you've probably had your heart broken. God, Jesus came to bind your broken heart. He, proclaimed, he came to proclaim liberty to captives. Now, none of us here, I hope, are, are enslaved, but all of us as human beings, as fallen creatures, are enslaved to sin. And Christ came to set us free from slavery to sin. And he came to comfort all who mourn because of the consequences of sin. Much of what takes place in our world, in the, the difficulties of the world, are results because of the curse of sin. Not necessarily personal sin, but because of the curse of sin upon this world. And we mourn over these things. We mourn over losses of lives, over earthquakes and, and wars. And those are all the results of a fallen world that's under the curse of sin. And Jesus Christ came to comfort those who mourn. Helps us to, to understand why our world is so messed up. Interestingly, when Jesus read these words, Isaiah 61, uh, verses 1 and 2, it, we find him reading in Luke 4, 8 and 19. He stopped halfway in verse 2. He, re- he ended with, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. He didn't include the day of vengeance. As a, it was a clue to us, hint to us, that, that really Christ was, was going to come twice. In his first coming, he came to provide salvation for mankind, to save the world. But in his second advent, in second coming, he will then come again to judge the world. But in both comings, in both advents, God's people will be comforted. It's interesting, in the New Testament, Paul actually talks about how God is the God of all comfort, 2 Corinthians 1, 3 to 4. And God is the all, he, he comforts us all in our affliction. How does he do that? Through Jesus Christ. 
we know in our afflictions. As a Christian, God doesn't remove afflictions from us, does he? Um, I was going to say, are you going through affliction? Well, you live in this world. You're going through affliction. You're going through trials. God sent Jesus Christ to comfort you in all of them, in every single one. I don't know the extent of the afflictions you've experienced in this life. I can imagine if my life is average, then there's a good number of you who have gone through some deep affliction, deep pains, deep sorrows. God says he sent us his son to comfort you in every single one to give you strength, to give you hope, to know even just to know that because of Christ, the trials that you're going through, the afflictions you're going through, he is using it to work together for your good, to sanctify you, to make you more like him, to grow and appreciate more of your need for him and glory in him. There is affliction for the afflicted in this world, and that's all of us. God gives us the provision of salvation to comfort, to bring us comfort, to bring us ultimately, the ultimate comfort is salvation from our sin. And this leads us to our fourth and final highlight, the last candle on this fourth Advent Sunday, and that is the servant is coming. These are probably the most the most uh, beautiful passages that we could find, Isaiah. There are many of them. But taking together, these four, uh, there's this four passages we call servant, song, servant songs that describe this servant that, of God that, is, that he is going to send in this world to deliver us from our sins. This word servant is actually found up some 20 times in, in chapters 40 to 66. Oftentimes, it's used to refer to the nation of Israel as it does in chapter 41, verse 8, where he says, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend. And clearly, uh, there's a reference that uh, servant, God's servant, refers to Israel, Jacob, descendant of Abraham. So sometimes it does refer to the nation of Israel. But there are at least four times in these servant psalms, the context passage indicates that the term refers to a single person, namely the Messiah, and so context will indicate which one it is, whether it refers to Israel, whether it refers to the Messiah himself. These servant songs of Isaiah, four of them, tell us of the coming of this servant, God's sending of the servant, his mission, his purpose, his devotion to his task. I want to first point out, I want to spend the rest of our time just kind of quickly going through these four servant psalms. The first is in Isaiah 42, verse 1 to 9. I'll read the first three verses of Isaiah 42. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. You notice, first of all, that the servant here in verse 1 is called God's chosen one. He is God's elect, God's choice he is the chosen one who God has, cho- has sent, who sends to deliver us from sin. He'll be empowered again, once again here, with, by the Holy Spirit. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Much of our afflictions in our world is because man acts unjustly, right? Much of your pain and sorrows is because you have been treated unrighteously by another. Sometimes it's because you have been acted unrighteously too, God's one day going to bring forth justice to the nations through this servant. But notice, he comes with gentleness and meekness. He will not cry out, not raise his voice. He's not going to demand his voice be heard in the street. He's so gentle that a bruised reed he will not break. You ever kind of walk around some of those lakes? You kind of see those reeds, you know, when you're a little kid, especially when you're a little kid. You see broken reed. What do you want to do? I just want to kick him. 
I want to break the reed off, you know. I just want to complete the task. You know? I just want to whoosh, kick it off. Jesus is not like that. A broken reed he won't even break. He won't even burn, uh, put out a dimly burning wick. Well, it's going to go out anyways. God is, he comes with gentleness and meekness. Verse 6 tells us even more of who he is. And this is God, the Father, the Lord God, speaking to the Messiah, the servant. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations. <coughs> Verse 6 here indicates that the servant is not Israel. It's a, it clarifies for us that the servant is not Israel, right? Because why? He's appointed as a covenant to the people. And the people there is a reference to Israel itself, the nation of Israel. He is, he is sent to fulfill God's covenant promises to the nation of Israel, particularly the covenant, the new covenant that will be fulfilled. So if he's going to come and fulfill God's covenant to the nation of Israel, he can, this cannot be the nation of Israel. This must be an individual. At the same time, he will be a light to the nations. We find. Jesus, we often sing that Jesus is the light of the world. He's not just light to the, to the, for the Jews. He's a light to the world. We thank God for that. And this is further brought out for us in the second servant song. In Isaiah 49, verse 1 to 13. In Isaiah 49, when you turn there, you'll see that the, verse 3 equates the servant with Israel. And so we, at first we might think that this is another part of those, one of those places where the servant is referring to the nation of Israel. But verse 5 indicates otherwise, that the servant is actually distinct from Israel. Look at verse 5 of Isaiah 49. And now says the Lord who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God is my strength. So we see that the servant is going to be, is brought from, formed from his womb to be a servant to bring Jacob back. That's Israel. So that he will gather Israel back to him. So therefore, again, it can't be the nation of Israel if he's, his task is to bring Jacob, to bring Israel back to God. He must be an individual, the Messiah, the servant. His task what's, is, is, is not only to bring Israel back, but it goes beyond Israel, as we see in verse 6. He says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. You know, you know if, you're, if you're a Gentile, you should just highlight this verse, okay? Claim this verse for yourself because this is why we're saved, right? This is why. I mean, because God chose Israel. And I, I, man, uh, God chose the Jewish people so that they would be his special uh, instruments from which the world might be blessed. But he could have just, if he stopped with just saving Israel, he would have been absolutely righteous in doing so. We would have nothing to say. Well, no, it's unfair, God. What's unfair is that his son has to die for our sins. But the Messiah, what's awesome here is we see in verse 6, God's compassion and mercy. We often think about, we've seen so much of God's judgment, God's wrath, but God's compassion and mercy is seen here in verse 6. It is an infinite mercy, infinite compassion, that when he thinks about his salvation that he sends his son to to accomplish, he says, no, it's too little thing for you just to go and save the Jews. I want you to also go and save the nations. Go to the ends of the earth with with my salvation. I love it because that was why God, John 3.16 doesn't say, for God so loved Israel that he gave his only begotten son, right? It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. I don't know that verse. You highlight that one too. God has sent, he sends his servant to be a light to the nations. The third servant song we find in Isaiah chapter 50, verse 4 through 11. And in it, we learn not so much about his mission, but his commitment to his mission, his devotion to his mission. Uh, Look at verse 5 through 8 with me. I I put it up there. It's kind of tiny, but I'll read it for you. The Lord God has opened my ears. So this is the servant speaking. And I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. 
I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. For the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I am not disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up to each other. Who has a case against me? Let him draw near to me. Jesus came to suffer and die in place of sinful men. That was his mission. He came to provide salvation through death on the cross, where he took upon the cross the penalty of our sins. At any, but at any moment, because he is the Son of God, he could have called an army of angels to come and deliver him. He could, have, he could have just come off the cross himself, if he willed. But he did not disobey his mission. He was not disobedient. God had told him his mission, and he heard and obeyed the Lord. He said, not my will, but thy will be done. He followed the Lord's sovereign, the sovereign Lord's will, the Lord God. And so because he saw, he willingly gave his back to be whipped. He gave his cheeks to be slapped. He gave his face to be spit upon. To fulfill his mission. He knew that he would be vindicated, that his treatment was an unjust treatment at the hands of men. And he knew that he would be justified, he would be raised up, and so he set his face like flint. He was determined to fulfill his purpose. And because he was determined to fulfill his purpose, listen to his exhortation to people. Verse 10. Who is among you that fears the Lord? that obeys the voice of his servant, that walks in darkness and has no light. Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Rely on God. I love this exhortation. He calls us to say, those of you, do you fear the Lord? Do you desire to obey his voice, the voice of his servant? Are you walking in darkness and you have no light? The servant says, trust in the name of the Lord. Rely upon God. You can do so because I have come to fulfill his purpose. I I will not sway from my purpose. I will accomplish it. I will bring it to pass so that when you get to the place where you fear God, when you want to obey the voice of his servant, the Messiah, when you come to realize that you are walking in darkness and you need light, you have none of your own, then you will heed the voice of the Messiah and you will put your trust in him and you will find that he is absolutely 100% trustworthy because he has set, he has set himself to accomplish that. And this is, this is from that point, but from this other side of the cross, we know he did, he did exactly that, right? He did it to a T. He fulfilled his, the purpose. That's why we can trust in him for salvation. Because he came, and he was determined, and he was devoted to fulfill it all, and he gave his life to do it. And we see this manifest for us or declared for us very so powerfully and vividly in the fourth servant psalm. And this is the one that we're all familiar with. Uh, we'll usually focus on it around Easter time. The fourth servant psalm is found in Isaiah 52, verse 13, to all the way to 53, verse 12. It describes in great detail his suffering for the sins of men. I want to focus on verses 4 to 6 for us this this morning. Surely, it says there, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. We can trust the Lord to save us because the Lord sent his servant to die for our sins. That was his mission, and he did not sway from it. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was chastened for our well-being. He was scourged so that we could be healed. Brothers and sisters, what is this describing? This is describing the substitutionary atonement of Christ, that Christ died in our place. Though he was sinless, he, didn't, he died 
in the place of sinners. Because of our rebellious sin, the Lord caused our iniquity fall on him. See, we've gone all, we're like sheep. We've gone our own ways. We've gone astray. We've followed after our own thoughts. And that alone is rebellion enough to be condemned by God. But on the cross, God took all our sins, our thoughts and our deeds, and he caused it all to fall upon Christ on the cross. Who bore it on the cross. Verse 12 summarizes it for us. He poured out himself to death, was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. He died among criminals. He died as a criminal, but he poured out himself to death, and in doing so, he died an innocent, sinless death, but it's death where he bore our sins, the sins of many. He interceded for us transgressors. He came, the servant came to save men from sin. And as we look back 2,000 years, we can find comfort knowing that he did just that. Just even in, just in the fourth servant psalm, there are so many prophecies fulfilled in Christ. And what's really neat, if, you could just, if we could just go backtrack to Isaiah's day, he, Isaiah wrote these prophecies in 700 B.C., these prophecies would not be fulfilled until about 30 some, 33, 36 A.D. 700 plus years later, these would be fulfilled. And if you need some apologetical proof, some defense of the faith material for why the Bible is true, just study Isaiah and look at all the, all the prophecies that were fulfilled exactly in Jesus Christ. It is a testimony to his truth, to the reality of Christ. I am mind-boggled when I sometimes read the, blog, you know, the, the comment section. Whenever, you know, anything religious, I read the comment section. And then some fool will always say, we have no historical evidence that Christ ever existed. I'm like, what? what do, you even, do you even read? Read history. Do you read the Bible? Do you even check it out? Have you ever searched? There is, there is not only the, there's so much extra biblical evidence. In the people like Josephus and other historians that refer to Christ, that is histor- at least very least the historical, uh, the historical existence of Christ. But more importantly than that, the Bible tells us, and the prophecy proves it. Though never enough for an unbeliever to believe, never enough. But it is an encouragement for you and me, brothers and sisters, to celebrate, to know the reality of Christ. And if you are here and you're not have not yet believed in Christ, I. I pray that you would meditate upon these truths and believe in Christ today because God sent him as a provision for your salvation. May this morning's overview for all of us remind us of how Jesus Christ was born to provide salvation. We celebrate the birth of Christ. I know that some of you are going to go home now, uh, probably going to head home to wherever, uh, home to your hometowns are. Some of you will stick around, but those of you that are heading back want to I particularly wish you all a Merry Christmas. On behalf of my wife and I and our family, we just uh, we hope you'll have a blessed Christmas celebration wherever you go, wherever you go. May you uh, be drawn close to the Savior. May God open doors for you to, to celebrate Christ, but to tell of the glories of Christ. As we were reminded even just yesterday, how so many reasons to be excited about the birth of Christ. It's so easy. When we're excited, we tell. Let's go tell some people about Christ's birth. I um, just want to, and we, again, uh, just uh, my family, just want to extend to you a Merry Christmas. And, uh, you know, because I'm a pastor's church, uh, it just would not be fair for me to give some of you a Christmas card, not others. So here's our Christmas card. <laughs> uh, but if you would like a copy of our Christmas card from Cindy and myself, we actually, we put one together. It's out on the, the foyer worship table, uh, foyer table out there. You can pick one up on your way out. Uh, put it on your refrigerator or dartboard, whichever one you want. <laughs> But do pray for us, okay? Pray for us as we pray for you. Let us close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, thank you so much for these reminders from Isaiah of your provision of our, for our salvation. Lord, as we go about uh, the, uh, this Christmas season, this final week of Christmas Advent, Lord, we pray that you would cause us to rejoice and be overjoyed and reflect in wonder, in wonder and awe once again, how you sent your son, your servant, 
to die for our sins, to provide for us salvation, not only to deliver your people from physical dangers, but to deliver us from the greatest danger of all, that is the danger of sin, the eternal judgment that comes with it. Thank you, Father, that you took our sins and our iniquity and caused it to fall upon your Son so that we who repent, who turn in faith to Jesus Christ, who answer the call, the invitation to come, to believe upon him, might know the joy, the comfort, the rest, the peace of having our sins forgiven, of having, a, of having a restored relationship with you and having a reason to rejoice this Christmas beyond just this life even, but in the life that is to come as well. Thank you, Father, for our brothers and sisters gathered here. I thank you, Lord, for this church family as we wrap up our year together. Lord, I ask your blessing upon each one. Cause us to draw closer to Christ. Cause us to love you more. Cause us to love our neighbors even more as you have loved us. And Father, we pray that we would constantly be used by you to be a testimony of the good news of Jesus Christ. These things we pray in our Savior's name.